Does everyone have an outline? Edwin, got one? Let me see it. Let me see everyone's outline. You got one, Andrew? All right, let's get Andrew an outline. We're on the back page of this outline. Chapter 4, Grace Delivered, the Word of His Grace. We've been taking a long time to get through this one. And I'm going to review very little just to say that the, everything we've shared up till now has been to help us understand that all of us, whether you know it or not, whether you hold it consciously or subconsciously, you have paradigms. That is, you have spiritual forces, you have ideas, you have mindsets, you have basic assumptions that you take to your reading of Scripture that that are determinative, absolutely determinative on what you'll get out of Scripture. Many, many uh, good Bible scholars, one of the reasons we've chosen uh, the, the book When the Church is a Family and asked everyone in our church to read that book is that he demonstrates very clearly in that book that when we read the family wording of Jesus and Paul and others in the New Testament, because of our in, radically individualistic culture, we miss their, their meaning of community altogether. So although we claim to be Bible-believing and it's nothing but the Bible, we have blinders on that are, that are the religious culture around us and the secular culture around us have contributed to that cause us to read the words of Scripture and miss the point. Now, we've discussed in this series, uh, or just in this particular message that's gone on now for four or five weeks, uh, we have discuss some of how that happened, the development of a uh, more Greek and Roman, Greco-Roman view of, of thinking in, the, in Western Christianity that uh, caused ever so slightly at first, but then growing and growing and growing and really grew strong after the Civil War, where we separate what we think and believe about things from what we do. Now, that is a non-biblical, non-Hebrew. Remember, the New Testament, as we said, was written by Hebrew-minded individuals using the Greek language. But never in God's word, Old or New Testament, would, would God's word separate what you think or believe or what you intellectually assent to from what you actually do. And we've made, that's become a way of life in modern evangelical Christianity. What we say we believe has very little to do with our character or our behavior. So um, that's very important for us to understand how that that, that developed gradually. And then uh, as, if, uh, as if it took steroids after the Civil War, that, that idea has become so radical. Uh, it's so radical that a leading scholar named Wayne Grudem, who wrote, uh, whose systematic theology is po possibly the mo uh, most popular systematic theology, and well deserves so, it's an excellent uh, bo book on systematic theology. In his art, in his chapter on faith and belief, he actually argues that we should stop using those words because we've so perverted what it means to believe or to have faith that we've turned it into I intellectually assent to these ideas when the biblical view of faith is I, I trust enough to obey. I trust enough to follow. In fact, Paul's great uh, sermon, uh, the book of Romans, his great... Uh, 
presentation of the gospel in the book of Romans. He starts in Romans 1 and ends in, at Romans 16, but in Romans 15, mo most of Romans 16 is greetings. At Romans 1 and 15, he starts and ends his argument by using the phrase, the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, that God had commissioned him to bring the obedience of faith that was, all, that was biblical and that the Jewish people understood that if you had faith, it, it had to result in obedience. He was now commissioned to bring that gospel, the obedience of faith, to the Gentiles. So uh, that's enough background to get into. What I, I want to get into today is point E on your outline. And I just want you to understand our approach. The church is supposed to be salt. If the church is actually Christian in a culture, the culture will actually be morally improving. The rights of the, the, rights of the unborn, the rights of uh, the oppressed, the rights of the needy will be to being defended. Uh, the family will be strengthened, uh, etc. The culture will grow morally. Uh, it'll be less sexually perverse. I hardly think that anyone needs much, in, you know, discussion of our culture to admit that that's not the case in our present culture. Many have, uh, even among secular people, many have talked about how we're in a uh, almost unprecedented, historically, free fall of character and morals. In fact, the news every day of every week is about political figures, business figures, sports figures, entertainment figures who have, who have committed any number of gross immoralities, embezzlements of money, uh, in, in all sorts of character flaws. We're, we're living in uh, a time when the church is certainly not being the salt of the earth. So we have to re-examine, well, how did we get here? And what I want to do is just go over some ideas that have developed in modern times that, that, begin, that are known as evangelicalism and fundamentalism. Uh, now, we are, as a church, probably somewhat evangelical and certainly agree with some of the, the, the letter of the law, you might say, of what fundamentalism was originally defined as. However, we need to understand that all movements have mixture, and that mixture will destroy you if you if if you don't. Uh, if we we need to rediscover, we need to reexamine, and we need to re um, we need to to relive. We need to to build a community of Christians that lives these truths. Now, we talked just now about E1, reason versus experience. Last week, I touched on pietism, and I am going to review that for a minute. Um, I, have, I really had hoped to have time to have all sorts of quotes from a number of books to show these points. Pietism began to grow up as the Puritan consensus in America broke down in the 1830s and following. Um, many people looked at um, Presbyterianism, uh, Episcopalianism, uh, the, the Puritan orthodoxy, the Reformed churches, and said, there's a dead orthodoxy here. There's, a, there's, there's good liturgy, there's good beliefs, but, but most people are not living it. They're using this as a, uh, a way of, um, they're using it as a way to of, uh, make business contacts, 
it's politically correct to be in church and so forth. Many churches had actually gone to the practice where the, the wealthiest members could buy a pew, donate money to the church, and that that pew would be reserved for them, and the poorest members would have to sit in the back. And that was exactly the opposite of what James teaches in, uh, in the New Testament, right? So uh, we have the poorest members be the teachers. No, so uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So uh, the... Uh, <clears throat> The, the idea of pietism has some good in it. It was basically saying that the Christian life, God is a spirit. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. And your spirit, the condition of your spirit before God is paramount in the Christian life. Therefore, spiritual disciplines like studying scripture, individual and corporate prayer, individual and corporate worship. You cannot be a Christian if you're not investing a good part of your whole life in daily spiritual breath disciplines. The, the Lord taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He wasn't talking about physical bread primarily, but he was talking about we need bread for our spirit and our soul. We need the word of God every day in our life. So the pietists were calling people back to a life of spiritual disciplines. The problem is, is that often in life, life is a little bit like a pendulum. When something's been way over here and you're, and you're calling people back, instead of calling them back to the center, you end up swinging way over here. And eventually, after the Civil War, and, and especially with the introduction of some of these other isms we're going to talk about today, what began to happen to pietism is that our spiritual life became everything. So Christianity became something we do in our private devotions. It's my personal relationship with Jesus that my, Jesus as my personal savior became invented as a saying. It's not in the New Testament, but that is actually the most common phrase used in so-called Bible-believing Christianity today, personal savior. And even uh, integrity, justice, righteousness was not, uh, there's a lot of other forces that contributed to this, but it was not uh, something that we do to society. It's not something we do within our family. It's not about how a husband treats his wife or how you pay your bills on time or, or whether you're the working as unto the Lord at your job. It's about these personal uh, spiritual disciplines, period. And then if, if there's any corporate aspect to it at all, it's what we do in prayer meetings and worship meetings and things in the church. But it doesn't really affect the society around us very long very much. Now, this pietism is none other than the, the second and third and fourth century heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was starting to grow within 20 years of the resurrection, was starting to seep into the church, and Paul's epistle to Colossians and John's first John were written to nip the Gnostic heresy in the bud before it was full, actually called Gnosticism or full-blown Gnosticism, but it's this idea that your spiritual life's important and, you're, and, you're, uh, and it's a private thing between you and God and you might share it a little bit within your church, but your, your public life and, and all those kind of things is, your, is a different thing. And in, in its most radical forms, you hear this a lot in, in American politics, like it no longer matters when someone's a public official what their private character is. All they care about is what their beliefs are. And you can have all sorts of craziness in your character. 
And somehow they think that won't affect your public life, which is craziness, of course. So um, Gnosticism especially grew strong in Pentecostal Christianity and uh, but in many, many stronger in, in fundamentalist Christianity. Some people would separate evangelicals from fundamentalists uh, by, in terms of degrees of extremes, you might say. And some people will jokingly call a fundamentalist as someone who loves God and hates people, and, uh, uh, which is unfortunately. Now, where that grew out of, by the way, is this whole thing grew out of um, after the Civil War, Many Protestant denominations began to embrace two ideas that we talked about a little bit before, but I'll just review them. One is called Darwinism, but, but Darwinism taken to apply to society is called social Darwinism. And because uh, Christians were believing in evolution, that contributed to another movement that was started by a man named Julius Wellhausen. If you want a good book, there's a, you can Google or Amazon this or whatever and, and look up uh, a book called Seven Who Rule from the Grave. It's about seven men who are long since dead, but their ideas are so prevalent in our culture that they in fact rule our culture. One of them was Julius Wellhausen. Julius Wellhausen started a movement which is still... Uh, the, the seminary here in Dayton called United Theological Seminary that I'm thinking of going to is ruled by a th concept called higher criticism. And higher criticism is the idea that we should go back and doubt what the, what the Hebrews believed about the Old Testament and its development, what the, the early church believed about the New Testament. So did Paul really write the letters attributed to his name? Uh, aren't we sure that Genesis 1 through 11 and uh, up till the call of Abraham is fiction and uh, the miracles of Jesus can't be trusted because we have an a priori belief in an anti-supernatural world so we can't trust that Jesus or the apostles did. And then, of course, the Christianized version of that is called cessationism, uh, where we say, well, those miracles were okay, but God doesn't do that anymore. He somehow changed. And uh, Jesus isn't the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 isn't really in the Bible. And so uh, this, what happened is, as, as the, what became known as liberal Protestantism grew, uh, they had no cons there was no doctrine of the sinful nature of man in their in their midst. So no one uh, people's addictions, people's uh, abuse of one another, uh, none of these were your were your fault. They were your parents' fault, your neighborhood fault. This is quite uh, allied with modern psychology. And so it's, it's what I call the my mother bit me when I was five syndrome. The problem with that kind of thinking, you know what? If you grew up in a rough family, a broken home, if there was abuse of different kinds, emotional, sexual, physical abuse or whatever, yes, that does have a great scarring impact on your life. But if, the, but if every problem you have is the result of that, it gives you no hope. Whereas the gospel gives you hope that you can become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And that you can receive when, you re, are, when your spirit becomes, when you, uh, when you repent of your sins, when you receive Christ as your Lord, that he can put a new heart within you and a new spirit. And you can become an entirely new person with entirely new habits and entirely new disciplines and entirely new character that has little, that, that every 
terrible thing that ever happened to you or that you ever did, all the sins you committed and all the sins that were committed upon you can actually be redeemed to become the stepping stones to become part of the new great creation God's making you. Now that's the gospel in a nutshell. And the, the social left, the left wing gospel had none of that. And so what we need to do is have all sorts of programs of social justice for the poor. Well, unfortunately, all sorts of programs of social justice for the poor is part of the gospel. And the evangelicals and the fundamentalists reacted against that. And they said, oh, if you feed the poor, if you, uh, if, if you, you know, if you clothe them and so forth, you must be embracing that liberal social gospel. So the evangelicals wanted nothing to do with visiting prisoners or, or, or anything except to save their souls in the sense that they prayed a sinner's prayer and now you're going to heaven and the rest of your life has been hell on earth and it probably still will, but what the hell, you're going to heaven at the end. That was, their, that was, that was evangelicalism in a nutshell. Now, fortunately, that's been changing quite a lot since the 1980s, and more and more evangelicals are awaking to a social justice consciousness. But that was, uh, that was uh, and that's really, the, the idea was that Christians don't get involved in real things. That was part of pietism. We don't get involved in politics because all politicians are well, wicked, greedy, self-serving, um, so, selfishly ambitious exploiters, which is true because power is a vacuum, and if the godly people don't get involved, then that's what you'll get. And frankly, in the last uh, 125 years, there's been one in a thousand, one in 10,000 people involved in the political realm that are really godly people. In fact, the nature of the gospel we're preaching is just not producing godly people. So uh, that's uh, important to understand what pietism is. And it's, it's where you, what you'll find if, is people who, especially in Pentecostal circles, people will love to worship God. They'll, they'll, be able to, they'll speak in tongues and be filled with the Spirit and get great. And actually, you want them in your prayer meeting. But it doesn't affect their marriage or how they approach their marriage. It doesn't affect how they do their job at work. It doesn't affect uh, getting emotionally healthy over time. You just get stuck with all the same problems, but you know how to get in the presence of God. And that's actually a heresy that the early church condemned called, called Gnosticism. And you cannot uh, transcend that until you get into a discipling community whereby a group of people are helping you see that Christ came to save all of you. He came to save, not, he didn't just come to save your spirit, and so that your soul would go to heaven. He came to create, recreate your soul how it was always intended to be in the image of God now. God wants to make you someone that if you could see the finished product or even see 20 years down the road, if you were to embrace the crosses God wants to bring you and embrace the studying he wants to do and give up the frivolous watching movies and spending, spending time on video games and things, things that are pretty much worthless and really in, invest in the kingdom of God, if God showed you how together of a person you are going to become, you wouldn't be able to believe it. 
He doesn't want you to have a lot of answers. He wants you to become the answer. He wants, uh, I'll pick on Caleb since I've been spending a lot of time with, he doesn't want Caleb to have a lot of knowledge. He wants someone to come to Caleb who's all messed up and say, Caleb, I'm all messed up. And Caleb just says, okay, just hang out with me all the time. You'll be fine in a short while. You want, God wants to make you be the answer. He wants to put Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's done through a discipling community of Christians. The image of God is, is quickly and constantly being restored uh, when we use all these three tools of grace we're talking about. This one is about the word, but you have to mix in the Holy Spirit and the community, the, a discipling community of Christians. Now, a second thing, we've already touched on this, and that was anti-intellectualism, especially with its view of anti-history. Because the Darwinist and the evolutionist and the higher critics were coming out of German universities, and they then eventually captured English universities and began to spread strongly in American seminaries and American universities and schools like Harvard and Yale that were once Christian. Uh, fundamentalists and evangelicals said, let's run from the battle and go f build a, a new uh, university over here instead of let's recapture this university for Christ. Now, part of what the outcome of that was is that studying a lot of things uh, became suspect because people who studied a lot of things were evolutionists and doubted the authority of the Bible. So a kind of a purposeful stupidity was pursued. Even in the evangelical universities, we want just, we, just the Bible, the Bible alone. Well, the problem with that is Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That applies to the church in every time period in every century. So to, to understand Jesus, we need to understand that he gave us the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures through his apostles and their disciples, and that he has opened those scriptures just like he opened the scriptures in Luke 24 to Cleopas and Simon, the two men who are walking with him on the road to Emmaus, not Simon Peter, a different Simon, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus also did the same to the apostles. And he's also done that to the church in various degrees and in various ways in every century. And so to negate history is to actually be antichrist. It's not more holy to be stupid. And gradually, there's a thing in, in biblical studies called hermeneutics, how do you interpret the Bible? Gradually, uh, we, there developed a way of interpreting the Bible that was only seen through the lenses of the, of the, of the fundamentalist and evangelicals' reaction against the modernist, without understanding how the reformers thought, how the Thomas Aquinas thought, how Paul, Augustine, Cyprian, Cyril... Ignatius, etc. 
Now that became very important because uh, many of the ideas we're talking about today have are completely modern ideas that people defend as being the Bible and the Bi- nothing but the Bible. <laughs> but they're a completely a modern interpretation of the Bible that your church never heard of before, say, 1890 or so. That leads to the next one. The concept of dispensationalism versus covenantalism. Christians, because of their Hebrew uh, origins, had always believed that God is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God, and then he deals with man through covenant so that God is not some unpredictable schizophrenic person. You know, I deal all the time with people who have trouble believing in the gospel, that God loves them, that uh, if they repent and receive him and follow his lordship, that their sins will be forgiven, and they, they struggle with this. If you will look at the God of the Bible, that's, he's a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. In, his, in, in the Psalms, there's Psalms that will say every other line says, his loving kindness is everlasting. The, the Hebrew there means his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. If he's Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, before they did one thing right or wrong. Those who God grants conviction of sin draws into his kingdom through granting them repentance. It's the kindness of God, Romans 2, 4, that leads to repentance. Those who God does that with, uh, he, there's no shadow or shifting or changing of, of, of uh, disposition. Now, when you sin, he's a covenant father. So he chastises you, sometimes very, very severely, through the, the practical circumstances of your life. So God can cause you to have economic hardship, emotional troubles, uh, you know, vocational nowhereness, not going anywhere and so forth, because he has a call of God on your life. And if you're not submitting to it, then you're chasing your flesh and the devil and the world's view of what you should be doing moment. Or if you're double-minded, where one moment you're loving the Lord and the next moment you're giving into your flesh all the time, you let the James says, let not that double-minded man expect that he'll receive anything from God. God loves you so much that he won't allow that to be blessed. He loves you too much for that. However, God's goal is to bless your whole life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's his goal. What he's, Psalm 32 says, don't be like the mule whose trappings include a bit and a bridle to hold them in check. Sometimes God has to really allow people to kind of go, you know, sometimes I've watched, I've worked with people who you can see they've kind of gone nowhere for two years, four years, six years, 10 years, because until you submit to his kingdom and his lordship and let him reign over you, there's, there's no blessing on, in your plan. He's not going to bless, late, if you're a single lady, he's not going to bless the man of your plan. <laughs> That's an old joke. But, uh, you know, he's not going to invest, you know, your, your goals of what, how you want your talents to be used are not necessarily his goals. And until you can come to, you say, thy will be done, you're never going to zero in on the greatness of what he has for you. Now, 
Dispensationalism introduced, was, uh, was invented by a guy named J.N. Darby. He was a quasi-cult person. Most of these ideas actually kind of started among cults. Thing, uh, like, for instance, the whole rapture idea started among a cult called the Millerites, who was an Ohio-based cult. And then evangelicals picked it up uh, sometime later, and, and it became the, uh, the predominant paradigm. J.N. Darby uh, invented dispensationalism, but it was popularized by a guy named Schofield, and Schofield had a study Bible. And I always jokingly say, if you have a Schofield study Bible, burn it and buy a good Bible. No, if you, you might use it as a reference tool, but try not to read it until you're at a certain level of maturity. So uh, probably the biggest names, the other big names in, in dispensationalism are Dakes and Ryrie. Ryrie is still a big name in the dispensational people. And they captured the evangelical seminaries, especially Dallas Theological Seminary, but our own beloved Cedarville is primarily a dispensationalist uh, seminary. Now, nobody had ever heard of this way of interpreting Scripture before 1890. But by 1920, 95% of fundamentalists and evangelicals were, had, were brainwashed in this paradigm to the level that the average person coming to Christ since then doesn't even realize that's happening to them. And they think, I'm actually just objectively interpreting the Scripture as it is. That's the power of paradigms. Now, here's some, uh, some aspects of dispensationalism. Uh, I'm going to see if I can't even give us a quote here. Yeah, that'll take too long. So I'm going to break it down a little easier. Um, dispensationalism came up with the idea that God has had seven dispensations in the history of the world, or will have, when there's the final millennium as the seventh dispensation. And that uh, in each of these dispensations, God's method of dealing with man, if you were to study what's called God's ways, I always tell people, pray that you'll understand God's ways. That's why you want to study character development of people God calls throughout the scriptures, old and new, and see how he sanctifies people and how he develops their character and so forth. God's ways um, in dispensational thinking, God's ways are different. in each dispensational. So much so that he has a different plan of salvation in each one. Okay, so um, he has a different way of saving them. So Adam was born into the Adamic dispensationalism, whereas covenantalists will say he was given the Adamic covenant, the covenant of dominion, and all of the features of that covenant are still in existence. And Adam his chance for salvation was by faith, but a biblical kind of faith, a biblical kind of faith that, that led to obedience. And all Adam and Eve had to do was trust the word of the Lord and obey it. Just like that's what you have to do. <laughs> so the dispensationists would say, Adam was given a covenant of works and he had to do what God told him to do in order to be saved. But 
covenantalists understand, Hebrews 13, 20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. God's always just had one covenant and he's been unfolding it through different covenants and making it more clear and more clear until the fullness of Christ. But the, the new, each unfolding covenant does not, as Galatians says very clearly, does not nullify or abrogate the provisions of the former covenant. As Jesus said in his great sermon on the Mount, his beginning teachings for what it means to be a follower of Christ, he said, don't think I came to abolish Moses and the law. I came to put it into force. It's the same covenant but I'm going to, I, grace and truth are going to be realized in me. And no longer is it going to be on tablets of stone outside of yourself, commanding you so that the sin within you is flattered by it. And the sin within you, as Paul talks about in Romans, causes you to keep falling short of doing it. But I have, I have done it and I'm going to be in you and you're going to want to do it. And you're going to be empowered to do it because I'm inside you. And I have fulfilled it. I came to put it into force and to give you the power to do it. Guess what? For all eternity, for the rest of your life, today, tomorrow, this week, if you try to do the things of God in and of your own works and strength, you are going to fall. But if Christ in you, the hope of glory is empowering you, if you're drinking of his spirit and partaking of his word and taking of his sacraments and embracing his church and all the means of grace in his life. If, if, if Galatians 2.20 is real to you, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. You will progressively be sanctified to want to do the things of God. And sometimes the progress and sanctification will by, be by leaps and bounds. So that people will go, since I'm picking on, pick on Sam instead of Caleb, people will go, that's Sam? This was a kid that we couldn't get to read the Bible or, or quit dilly-dallying or poking around or doing it in three, you know, for three years? And, and now he's this giant of spiritual faith. Worse, you know, every time I catch Sam doing something, guess what I catch him doing? He's always reading the word or worshiping. You know, I knock on his door and I open up and I look in. He's always got five columns of Bible Gateway open and, and a Bible. Or he's got a YouTube worship video and he's like this with his buds in and he doesn't even know I'm looking at him. Oh, Lord, but I'm just worshiping though. Okay, now this is what happens when Christ is living through you. And when you're constantly drinking of the tools of grace. Turn off the TV, turn, quit watching the movies, don't waste time on brain, on, you know, they say TV is chewing gum for your eyes. Get into the things of the Lord. And it'll affect what kind of worker you are, what kind of neighbor you are. It'll affect everything. That's covenantalism. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and his covenant is he's offering to live his life through you so that you'll want to do the law and you will do the law. Now, again, dispensationalism saw this discontinuity between each of the covenants, and they even saw it as a separate plan of salvation. So Abraham was saved by works. When the Bible makes clear that Abraham, even in the Old Testament, if you didn't have Romans 4 and John 8, you could still understand that Abraham was saved. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
The Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the promised atonement that was upcoming, and we're saved by faith in the atonement that's happened. And it's the same faith that saves us. Now, some other things that came out of this is that they began to use the phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's a big phrase to dispensationalists. The problem is they never put it back together. There's never major themes or as John is always uh, teaching, he's tracing various biblical images that, that are developed from Genesis to Revelation and major themes throughout the scripture and so forth. They don't, they don't believe in any of that. They believe John would be a heretic. <laughs> you know, they don't believe in any uh, that God had some eternal plan and the word of God is one. To chop up the word of God into different authors and sections and so forth. And then so how you teach is you find proof text to support your idea. You come up with an idea and then you slap a proof text on it, but you don't study the Bible as a comprehensive whole. Therefore, you never, you never identify uh, radical, you know, major themes. Now, another idea of, of dispensationalism is that God had, all through the Bible, God wants a people for his own possession. And the people of this world are contrasted with the people of God, and the people of this world hate and persecute the people of God. That's a major theme of the Bible. The dispensationalists would say God had an Adamic people, and then he had a Noahic people, and then he had an Abrahamic people, and so forth. And they believe that God made a covenant of works with Israel, which will be reinstated. And that God came to make Israel a geopolitical kingdom. In other words, that you can find it on the map and it, you can define what territory it'll rule and so forth. Instead of seeing like David and Solomon's uh, day as just a foreshadowing of the, real, of the real kingdom of God, they would actually say that was an expression of the kingdom of God and that there's going to be this time called the millennium when Christ is going to come back and restore Israel to be in a geopolitical entity. Now, this dispensational idea actually was the idea of the Pharisees as well. And so all through Israel, prior to the coming of Christ, the people were looking for a Messiah with a sword, not a sword of the Spirit coming out of his mouth, cutting to the quick people's hearts, but they were looking for a geopolitical leader who would rise up in a great rebellion and throw off the Romans. That's who, that's who uh, uh, Barabbas was. Which, by the way, Barabbas means son of the father. And see, in every generation... God has always given the people of, of God a choice. Jesus as your king and Messiah, Savior, Lord, all in all, ruling your, the church, ruling the family, ruling everything, or Barabbas. And the modern church has held out for Barabbas. Because they've said, as Jesus predicted in Matthew we will not have this man to rule over us. That is the attitude of God's people. No one is, I define Christianity myself and I define who, my realities and how far I go. 
I'm not about to let the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the church define anything for me. We will not have this man, speaking of Jesus, rule over us. That was the cry of Israel in Jesus' day. That's the cry of most of the modern church. And Jesus said, whenever God's people have that in them, the kingdom will be taken away from them and given to a people, a nation that produced the fruit of the kingdom. Now, part of the hermeneutics that developed, this will have to be my last point for today, but we need to understand these things, was um, Luther's idea of a literary interpretation of Scripture, the German is something like literar, was overthrown for a literal interpretation of Scripture. Luther taught the Bible is a book that God has given us. It's infallible. It's authoritative, but we have to interpret each section for the type of literature it is. So in the Song of Solomon, it's a word picture. It's an image. It's a poem. The Bride of Christ doesn't really have a neck like the Tower of Siloam and wool for teeth and her breasts are gazelles. You know, that would be a that would be some weird looking person, wouldn't it? You know. But it's all a poem. So when it's poetry, interpret it as poetry. The fundamentalists held out for you've got to interpret every jot, tittle of the Bible literal. So hidden in the Song of Solomon is some verse we can grab as a proof text and make our literal interpretation of some weird thing that it's really Russian helicopters or something. So uh, I guess I'm going to press on just a little bit. The next thing that grew out of that was a concept called antinomianism. We've touched on this quite a bit. But antinomianism is the concept that because we, as Christians, we're under grace, not law. Therefore, the law of God is not important. Unfortunately, all the history of the church, from the apostles through the reformers, interpreted the law as necessary to be our tutor to lead us to Christ, to convict us of sin, and even after we've become a new creation in Christ, the law was there to sanctify us. Because what Christ came to do was write the law on our inward heart, thoughts, motives, and, and, and empower us to, to want to do it. So while the law says don't commit adultery on tablets of stone to a, to a stone, heart of stone, when Christ comes in and gives us a heart of flesh, he changes us to not even want to lust after a woman. Part of the answer to uh, overcoming internet porn and stuff, which I know I'm so glad that we didn't even have that when I was growing up, part of the answer is, of course, loving God more and more and more, but it's also uh, understanding those those. Ladies are somebody's sister. They're somebody's daughter. They're human beings that are being exploited. And God help us for, to not be so wicked as to, to be users. Because the greatest in the kingdom of God is a servant. And the world wants to make you a user so that you, you, you have to get your fix of this or fix of that and so forth, and you use everybody in your life 
You constantly disappoint everyone. You lie, you steal, you don't show up, you twist things because you, you don't, because you're more important than them. The, when Christ comes into your life, the liberation that he brings is God is your all in all and people were made in the image of God. So I have to choose Edwin over me. I want to choose Edwin over me. Who wouldn't want to choose Edwin over me? <laughs> you know, but I mean, that's, you know, that's the liberation of the gospel. Antinomianism is this idea that the law of God is no longer important. I've actually heard some extremists say, well, it wasn't even the law of God in the first place. It's the law of Moses. <laughs> I'm like, what the? I'd like to, can I, Jesus, can I just punch him this once? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you can't. Uh, <laughs> The Lord doesn't give the church the power of corporal punishment. I'll adopt him first, then I'll spank him. All right. (laughs) But uh, really, I mean, uh, you now if you don't, if you need any proof that the evangelical church has not uh, considered the law of God important, when the attack to get the Ten Commandments out of our script, uh, out of our society, began in the 1950s. 80% of Americans would consider themselves born-again Christians. Now, if you can't hold something down with an 80% majority, because 2 or 3% are that much more dedicated than you, then you've got to question the, the reality of what you have. Now, only about 50% of Americans would consider themselves Christians today, Uh, You know, that's declining rapidly all the time. But we have presided over the last 60 years, the taking out of the Ten Commandments, which just from the sake of our history shouldn't happen. No matter what our beliefs are, they were all over the creation of this country. Every court had them on every courtroom walls, every school. When I was a kid, the public schools had the Ten Commandments uh, in every classroom. And part of the reason we have this generation that's of the, the third, you know, what they call the millennials, who can't understand that walking with Jesus includes character and morality and, and holiness, is because they, ha- they don't know the law, nor do they think it's important. Now, a perspective that honors the law is called theonomy. And I'll just say, if you get into studying that, there's different guys who go different lengths of how far they would take theonomy. We don't have t- any more time than that.